So tonight, I'm going to speak about wise intention. And wise intention includes three aspects. The aspect of renunciation, of letting go of sense desire, loving kindness, or metta, counters ill will or aversion, and compassion, uh, counters cruelty or harming. So renunciation, loving kindness, compassion. And I'll start with a story, a story of um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I think is a being who manifests those beautiful qualities of renunciation, metta, compassion, bring those forth into the world. So as I mentioned earlier, I worked at the airport for many years. I think this was about uh, 2007. A police officer at the airport who was on the dignitary protection unit told me that His Holiness the Dalai Lama would be arriving in San Francisco in a few days. And he said I could meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama at the bottom of the stairs from the plane. So. I came to work on a Saturday morning so that I could meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Expected just to greet him, just to see him. He was traveling from India via Japan, so arriving on Japan Airlines. And uh, when he arrived, when the plane arrived, he, he doesn't have to go through customs because he's treated as a head of state. And uh, I met him on the ramp level by the plane. So he just came down the jetway stairs. I'd expected that a lot of folks would be there, but instead it was just security personnel. His own security protection unit, police officers, U.S. Secret Service. So probably about uh, 20 security people. And uh, in fact, everyone was carrying a gun except myself and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. <laughs> so, I remember the scene just before he came out of the plane. I saw just to my right side a chicken bones from someone's lunch they had left on the pavement. I'm kind of panic in my mind. Oh my gosh, we shouldn't have this unsightly thing there arriving from when His Holiness the Dalai Lama is arriving, but it's too late. <laughs> So he came down the stairs very slowly, and uh, I was the only one standing at the bottom of the stairs waiting to greet him. And just seeing him, he radiated compassion and kindness, great sense of peace. Quite moving just to see him. He got to the bottom of the stairs, and I bowed. And then he took my hand, and we shook hands. And we turned and the police officer, my friend, had a camera. I didn't expect that. So we stood and posed <laughs> for a photograph to be taken. And I told His Holiness that I was a practitioner. And he nodded. Then he walked to his car, 60, 80 feet. A little motorcade, five cars for all of his security people and for himself. 
And uh, he looked back to me right as he was about to get in the car. And I thought, he can't possibly be looking at me. <laughs> but what do you do when His Holiness the Dal- Dalai Lama is looking at you? I bowed. And then he called me over. He just waved me to come over. It's a very simple act, but I, I think it was an act of great kindness and compassion. I walked over and he took my hand again and he said, tell me, I want to know, how long have you been practicing? That was it, such a simple question. I was so deeply moved that his arriving after 20 hours of travel, that he would connect with me and feel into the importance of my meeting him and take the time to call me over. He must certainly have been exhausted after that long day of travel. And I didn't know this, but the police officer was taking a whole series of photos throughout this whole interchange. So I have about 20 great photographs. The very last photograph, I was standing still watching the motorcade drive away. And I had a face of the deepest equanimity I've ever seen on my own face. Such great peace. So... Just a couple of weeks after that, the police officer thought I might be into meeting, into meeting the VIPs who came through the airport. So he said, well, President Obama's arriving. <laughs> I guess I would have actually in 2008. Uh, President Obama's arriving. Do you want to see him when he steps off the plane? I said, no, nothing can beat His Holiness the Dalai Lama. <laughs> so... So, wise intention, the second uh, path factor, second factor on the Eightfold Path. When we practice with wise intention, with renunciation, with the letting go of things needing to be different than they are, intention of loving kindness, intention of compassion, we both bring more happiness into our lives, more happiness into the lives of people around us. But it also deeply supports our practice of waking up, of realizing a deeper happiness. Practicing wise intention is a practice both for the world, but also for our practice right here on retreat. It became a really important part of my practice in, um, about 12 years ago. I had returned from a six-week retreat and really felt like I couldn't go back into the work world, that I had to devote myself fully to the Dharma. I actually thought of becoming a renunciate. But I had a partner that I loved and a job that I really liked. Felt like I was making a contribution. So it wasn't in the cards. So I decided, well, I've got to just bring the practice to the whole of my life, including including work, um, and of course, including the retreat time. Previously, I'd really had this wall between retreat time and sitting practice at home, and then not really practicing the rest of the time in my life. So a big adjustment. And the Eightfold Path was really brought alive when I started practicing in this way. And particularly practicing with wise intention, because it's really a key a key link on the Eightfold Path, a key point that supports 
uh, wise intention, wise speech, wise livelihood, and deepens our practice of mindfulness. So I've been a slow learner. I've been on so many retreats and uh, had periods where I'd practice with metta, compassion, but kind of pushed that aside. I was striving so hard to get somewhere in practice. I let go of seeing how important kindness and compassion were on the path. And so I reconnected with the importance of these qualities when I started practicing more deeply and cultivating wise intention. So wise intention, you may also know it as right thought or wise thought, but I'll use the word wise intention uh, through this talk. And renunciation, um, renunciation is a letting go of sense desire. Metta in the text, instead of saying metta, the Buddha refers to these three aspects as renunciation, non-ill will, and non-harming. But in the absence of ill will, metta, loving kindness, comes forward. In the absence of harming or cruelty, then compassion comes forward. So in my talk tonight, I'll be referring to renunciation, loving kindness, and compassion. I need to say a little bit too about the Eightfold Path overall to put wise intention in context. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago that the first path factor is a wise view. A very briefly, very, very briefly, wise view recognizes the Four Noble Truths. In effect, wise view sets the direction for our practice. The realizations of the Four Noble Truths that leads to an unconditional happiness. And wise view also recognizes the law of karma. Recognizes the law of karma that every action has a consequence without exception. Karma is the present action, present action that arises from causes and conditions, past intentions, past actions, and always a present intention, always a present intention before the present moment action. The law of karma is a great definition of the law of karma from uh, Ruth Dennison, one of the first women Vipassana teachers here in the West, which is karma means you don't get away with nothing. And I understand she may have actually said, you don't get away with nothing, darling. Quite a character. And so many times in my own practice, right here in this retreat hall, often on retreat, sometimes toward the end of a retreat, just that recognition, a powerful recognition that every single action matters. Every single action has a consequence. And when we see and understand that, it really deepens our commitment to practicing wise intention, to cultivating what is skillful, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. So wise, wise intention supports avoiding both intentions and actions rooted in sense desire, rooted in ill will, rooted in harming. And wise intentions and wise the actions that follow are rooted in the sense of letting go, 
in metta and in compassion. So an intention before every action. So first path factor, wise views. Second path factor, wise intention. The two wisdom factors. Wise intention before every action. So the intention that comes before speech, before action. So wise intention is affecting our practice of wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. The seal of factors on the Eightfold Path. And every moment of our experience in the practice, the concentration basket on the Eightfold Path of wise effort, wise concentration, wise mindfulness. I got those out of order. Wise effort, uh, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. Uh, every, every moment is colored by wise intention. So it's a, key, it's a key link. And in fact, you can really consider it the key link uh, relative to the key factor on the law of karma, that there, there is this importance of the intention before every action. So we can check our intentions. Why is intention right here in our practice? Check intention on how we're meeting our experience. Is there an intention of sense desire to change the experience, to try and move toward what is pleasant or pleasurable? An intention of ill will or aversion, perhaps to avoid an unpleasant, painful experience. Or for experiencing um, pain in the body, is there, is there, so there should be, I need to reconnect in the body for a second here again. I'm practicing, practicing as I'm speaking. So when, when there's ill will or aversion that arises in our practice, we want to meet that with kindness, with a quality of loving awareness that James spoke about on Sunday night. And when we experience suffering in the body or the mind, we have the intention of meeting it with compassion. These are the three aspects of wise intention. So, wise intention can both be kind of a broader resolve with our practice, but also it's arising in every moment. Wise intention in every moment of our practice serving as an antidote, forces of renunciation, loving kindness, compassion, serving as an antidote to sense desire, to ill will, uh, to cruelty or harm, harming. So the wise intention serves to support the diminishment of the hindrances and the arising of the seven factors of awakening that support the clarity of the heart and mind. Support the heart releasing from confusion. I want to note too here that intentions are not enough. So we also need to be mindful of impacts. Um, there can be a tendency to think that a good intention is enough. But if we're fully aware, we need to be aware, especially around speech, on how our words or when the words are spoken can impact others. 
I was reflecting on the history of our country. So many, so many things, especially around race and ethnicity, good intentions, but with deep confusion that harm was caused by actions of our government. I'm something of a, a student on Native Americans and the relationship to our government. And uh, for many, many decades, Native American children were pulled from their homes and forced to attend boarding schools, perhaps rooted in a kind, good intention, but clearly great harm was, was done by those actions. So I'd like to tell a, another story uh, before beginning to explore the aspect in more detail of why of uh, renunciation. It's a story of a uh, a king, a king Asoka, he lived 250 years after the time of the Buddha, so about uh, 2,300 years ago. And the story about King Asoka and his interaction with a renunciant, a monk. This king ruled a large kingdom in what is now northern India, and he ruled for almost 30 years. He was known as a, a brutal king. Uh, very unkind to his people at war with the neighboring kingdoms. It's said that in his first nine years as king that 80,000 people died in battles and 110,000 people were deported. Interesting, even in that time, deportations. But about nine years into his uh, rule, after particularly bloody battle. The battle was over, the carnage was on the battlefield, and a monk was walking across the battlefield, serene, at peace, seemingly undisturbed by this carnage on the battlefield. And something was moved inside the heart of the king in seeing this. And the king asked this monk, who remains nameless, How did it come to be that he could be so peaceful in the midst of this scene? And the monk shared the Buddha's teachings. So it inspires me because I think what that monk might have done and how he in fact responded to the king. If he was driven by the force of sense desire, he would have strayed from his path. He would have walked off the path, perhaps toward a beautiful forest on the side. A logical thing that any one of us might have done to avoid something so unpleasant. But he stayed on his path, you could say on his path of practice. He might have reacted with aversion, ill will. Might have gotten angry at the king and said, how could you do this? How could you cause all of these deaths? Logical thing for a person to do. But instead, he replied with kindness and compassion. He could have even acted with cruelty. He might have caused harm to the king, even taken the king's life and said, in effect, I am taking your life to prevent the loss of other lives. But he remained committed to the principle of non-harming. So this monk acted with 
renunciation, letting go to accept the circumstances as they were, responding with kindness, compassion coming forward even for this king who had caused such great harm. And the king was moved to become a practitioner. And he became known as a kind and benevolent king to his people and at peace with the neighboring kingdoms. The last 20 years or so of his rule, those were the qualities that were present. And his son, the king's son and daughter, also became practitioners and carried the, forward, carried the practice forward to Sri Lanka. And from there, the practice was carried forward to Burma, now Myanmar. And of course, many of the teachers here at Spirit Rock received their training, spent significant time in monasteries in Burma. So our practice, you could say that we're practicing here today, the lineage of our practice traces all the way back to that interaction between the monk and the king. That's how the lineage carried forward. So quite amazing to reflect that when we practice with kindness, with compassion, how our actions might carry forward into the world in powerful ways. So hopefully there's one among us one among us who can have that kind of influence on some of the key leaders in the world today. So renunciation, intention for renunciation. For most of us it's not about giving up all of the things of the world, the way monks and nuns do. It's most of all about letting go, letting go of the force of sense desire, letting go of our attachment to preferences, not making our happiness dependent on getting what we desire, what we prefer to have. So this sense desire this craving for what is pleasant and pleasurable, this insatiable thirst for what is pleasant and pleasurable, to hang on to it, to make it permanent. This is to be abandoned or to see into its unsatisfactory nature, to see this as a cause of suffering. Also, I'm again quoting from the third Zen patriarch that this quote, uh, the great way is not difficult for those not attached to preferences. So not attached to preferences. So this quote acknowledges we can still have preferences, but the letting go is the letting go of the attachment to preferences. Not making our fundamental happiness dependent on getting things the way we want them to be. At times, even the preferences though, can drop away too. So sometimes the attachments drop away we let go of clinging. Sometimes even the preferences themselves go away. In my practice this week, I've been observing that around spinach. <laughs> spinach and the lasagna again today. <laughs> Sometimes there's an attachment to the preference. Clinging takes hold, a little story. Sometimes no, no attachment, just a preference. Sometimes a preference itself drops away. No problem. And in fact, I've never gone hungry at Spirit Rock. So. 
So it's often said the whole of the practice is one of letting go. Letting go more and more deeply. Letting go of everything. And there's this quote from Ajahn Chah I really love, but I really have learned to understand it in a different way over the years. And I'm sure many of you have heard it. Let go a little, you'll have a little freedom. Let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom. Let go completely and you'll have complete freedom. And your troubles with the world will have come to an end. I love that last line, it's often left off. But you know, if I could let go completely, I'd let go completely right now, our hunship would be attained. So there's actually, it's a gradual process for the vast majority of us. It's a gradual process. It's a letting go, coming into a retreat like this, having a little bit of clarity, seeing what leads to suffering, what leads to happiness, seeing into the nature of dukkha, insights arise, and there's a a little bit deeper letting go. Maybe some peace, joy, contentment come forward. Then we're hit with another wave of dukkha. Further clarity arises, a little more letting go. So it's a gradual process. So in my understanding, my direct practice, that the letting go requires a continuous commitment to practice, continuous commitment to allow the Dharma to do the work, to reveal itself. There's a sutta in which the Buddha speaks to Ananda, his attendant, about the value of a renunciation. And the Buddha was recalling a time when he was a renunciant, but had not yet yet realized awakening. And he said to Ananda, in reflecting back on that time, he asked the question, what is the reason my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace? Then the Buddha said, it was because I haven't understood the drawback of sense pleasure. I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. So understanding the drawback of sense desire, understanding dukkha is such a key element of our practice that allows a deeper renunciation. So we can see the benefits of renunciation here. So many folks have commented on, uh, in practice meetings to me on periods when they feel ease or peace or great happiness, sometimes even a happiness that may, they might not, not have been experienced, might not have experienced before. Even perhaps right mingled in with a dukkha that's being known too. It's quite amazing. We're really practicing like renunciants here. We, we set aside so many things of our lives to live so simply, and yet there can be this great happiness that comes forward, even amidst the suffering, even amidst the awareness of the suffering. So we begin to recognize more and more deeply that clinging leads to suffering, and the letting go, the absence of clinging, craving, attaching, to sense desire leads to peace, leads to peace, leads to happiness. A great expression of wise renunciation from Shanti Deva. Why be unhappy about something if it can't be remedied? 
And what is the use of being unhappy if it can be remedied? So a beautiful expression for practice. A few tools I use to support the renunciation, the letting go. Sometimes finding myself caught in a fantasy or thinking, and then becoming aware of that. Labeling, perhaps thinking or planning, fantasizing. And then I have this tool, just noting let go, let go. So there's a real deep intention to not judge having got lost in thought, and a deep intention to let go, to let go entirely to the present moment, just let go to the present moment experience just as it is. That in itself is a powerful moment, that moment of returning, of letting go. Another tool I use to my, in my practice is sometimes you can be aware of that moment when the mind is about to go off, being t- pulled toward a fantasy or a thought, that about to moment. Sometimes the repetitive kind of thought pattern that comes up and can just gently note, note, not now, not now. Just in effect, cutting it off, but in a gentle way. So that supports a letting go. I think of the great inspiration of, again, of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the, the renunciation of his practice of having lost his own country almost 60 years ago. He was very young as a head of state for Tibet when the Chinese government took Tibet and he had to escape to uh, India. And um, yet he is in the world in this very peaceful, loving, compassionate way, not caught, not caught up around attaching his happiness to seeing his country of Tibet return to him and his people. And such a powerful statement that he refers to the Chinese senior government officials as my friend's the enemy. My friend's the enemy. That's unconditional, boundless metta. So the second aspect of wise intention is, is metta. It counters the force of aversion or ill will. This basic friendliness, goodwill, benevolence for all beings, ultimately unconditional and boundless. It connects with the wish of all beings without exception, all beings without exception, to be safe, happy, healthy, and at ease. deeply supports the loving awareness that James was talking about. When we cultivate loving kindness, it's not just a nice thing on the side, it's supporting a kinder, gentler, loving awareness that's supporting our mindfulness practice right here. So we see the habitual patterns of the mind sometimes when, when uh, to feel ill will, perhaps when we're feeling anger or fear or jealousy, to rather than meet it with loving kindness, to either push it down, to not to, not to, to deny it, or to expel the anger, or to judge the experience, in effect meeting the experience with ill will. So with wise intention, we're meeting all of our experience with a kindness, with a loving awareness. So we meet our experience more fully, 
can meet our experience more fully when we meet it with this quality of loving awareness and drop in the tool of rain, perhaps, of recognizing what's present, accepting, being intimate with, and then ultimately not identifying with. And we can recognize the healing happens through love. The healing happens through love. The Buddha said that hatred never heals by hatred. Hatred is healed by love alone. This is the eternal law. It's true in our own practice. It's true in the world, the healing that happens through love. So we find we can really trust the heart. We can trust the heart in that healing process if that's part of our work here on this retreat. We can meet every moment with love and recognize that love doesn't stand in opposition to anything. Love simply loves, can embrace anything that arises in our practice. I was telling a couple of the other teachers here about this amazing figure. He gets little news, is uh, Abiy Ahmed, who's the uh, prime minister of Ethiopia. He was elected a couple of years ago at the age of 43. He has a PhD in peace. And he was elected on the theme, campaign theme of love wins. Isn't that amazing? Love wins. And he's continued to carry it, carry it through. He uh, was elected and immediately released the opponents of his own political party from prison and invited uh, his released prisoners to his prime minister's home for a dinner as a reconciliation process. He's made initial peace with Somalia that's been in a battle with Ethiopia for about 30 years and recently received the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts. So inspiring figure that's acting from that place of recognizing that the hatred heals from love. So I thought I might tell the uh, story of the Buddha's first teachings on um, metta. Um, this is actually not in the suttas, but uh, in the commentaries. Um, it was said that in in the Buddha's times, he sent uh, about 500 monks to a site at the foot of the Himalayas to practice for the rains retreat, the 90-day retreat that renunciants go on. And sent them to this beautiful location that at the, at the, had a forest location, very soft soil, a neighboring town where the townspeople were generous and offering alms. Even the townspeople helped, helped to build huts for the renunciants, kind of the ideal conditions. But in the story, this story has a little bit of fable perhaps, uh, the tree spirits were disturbed by the presence of the monks. And the uh, tree spirits began making frightening sounds, sights, smells to scare away the monks. And the renunciants, the monks were terrified, so they started leaving this area to go to the Buddha and asking for another place where they could practice, saying they were terrified by the, by the setting. In effect, they said, uh, we want a do-over. We'll start the 90 days all over again if you let us go to another location. And the Buddha said, go back to the same spot. 
It is only by wise effort there that you will effect the destruction of the inner taints. Fear not. If you want to be free from the harassment caused by the deities, learn this metta practice. It will be a theme for meditation as well as a formula for protection. And he offered the practice of metta. So they returned to the forest and it wasn't immediate. And they still had fear, they still had anxiety that they were practicing with. But over time, they were not overcome by the, those forces because they were meeting those forces of ill will and aversion with metta. And it was said that the tree spirits became supportive of the Renatsians joining in the field of metta. And of course, in these stories, in the Buddhist time, all 500 of the monks realized complete awakening during that 90-day period. So, metta has this quality of, of softening the heart. Softening the heart, making the heart more malleable. Supporting the healing, supporting forgiveness. The malleability is... Um, well, all of the Brahma-viharas are impermanent, impermanent, subject to a rising and passing. Loving kindness has a little bit more of this quality of being a sustaining, something that's sustaining. The way I think of His Holiness the Dalai Lama as having a sustaining quality of loving kindness. But compassion and mudita, supportive joy, arise in response to conditions that are present. So... Metta supports this malleability. Compassion arises when suffering is known. When suffering is recognized, there's a natural wish for the suffering to end. That's compassion. It's actually a very close neighbor to mudita because mudita recognizes the happiness of others and wishes it to continue. So metta provides this malleability of the heart that also supports our practice right here with the insight meditation. And we find a greater capacity of the heart with a metta practice. It was such a wake-up call for me when I got this because I was so missing out in my striving on how important metta is to the practice. We find this greater capacity of the heart. As Sharon Salzberg says, if we learn to see and understand all of these painful mind-soul state, painful mind states of anger, fear, grief, disappointment, and guilt, as states of aversion, we can learn to be free of them. Being free of them does not mean that aversion will never come up in our experience. Being free means we can purify it. We can see it clearly, which is a function of wisdom. We can hold it in the vast transforming field of acceptance. And another inspiring quote on metta from Deepama. Deepama was one of the most realized practitioners of the last century. And this is a comment from her on metta. A powerful statement on the power of her practice. She said, I feel loving thoughts and metta toward everyone. I don't discriminate. I don't say, this is my daughter. I have to give her more attention. My love feels the same towards everyone. 
quite inspiring, isn't it? That's a profound level of metta. So metta also serves to break through the sense of separateness. As we kind of expand the circle, it's like we stretch our hearts, find a greater capacity of hearts, of our heart, opening to the suffering of the world and finding this greater capacity to be present as well for our own suffering. And two last quotes on uh, metta. This is from Mother Teresa. Spread love everywhere you go. Let never let no one ever come to you without leaving happy. And from Sharon Salzberg, for all of us, love can be the natural state of our own being. Naturally at peace, naturally connected, because this becomes a reflection of who we simply are. So we practice cultivating loving kindness, cultivating metta, but ultimately it's just a surrender. It's a surrender. We just allow love to come forward. When our hearts and minds are not clouded by the forces of greed, aversion, delusion, the Brahma Viharas just arise naturally. A third aspect of wise intention is compassion. Compassion, this attitude um, rooted, compassion is rooted in the attitude of non-harming, harmlessness. This often experiences this quivering of the heart when we see and feel the suffering of others. Maybe the sudden recognition of a deep level of suffering that's present, quivering of the heart. And we bring it into our practice here by recognizing when suffering is present. Just a simple acknowledgement, I'm suffering. May I be free of suffering. It brings us into the present moment experience with a heart of kindness and compassion. My teacher, Sylvia Borstein, has a great line she uses for herself. Sweetie, you're in pain. Relax, take a breath. You could come up with your own words, but that simple acknowledgement, simple acknowledgement of the discomfort in the body or the mind is a great act of compassion that supports more energy and deepening for, our to be, for us to be present with our direct experience. When we acknowledge suffering, we're also acknowledging the universality of suffering. Sometimes it's kind of vice versa too. We might open to the universality of suffering first. Story of this, I had been really stuck around my own suffering in a long retreat, remembering a painful memory and really get caught in, get, getting caught up in it, feeling kind of a pity around it, a self-pity. And I told my teacher this and he said, I see that you're, you see your own suffering, I see the suffering of the world. And I just took that in and continued with my sitting and walking practice. Then a few hours later, just a sudden insight, aha, there's millions of other people in the world experiencing the exact same kind of suffering that I'm experiencing. The heart opened up to compassion for all those beings. And then the heart opened to compassion for myself, providing a greater spaciousness and kind of moving out of the sense of being stuck in practice.
it's a great practice to drop in at times too, just to ask the question, is suffering present? It might not be. It might be you're outside looking at the landscape, the sky, maybe in sitting, sitting practice, there's just a sense of peace and contentment. We can just drop it in. Some, sometimes there's subtle layers of clinging or holding suffering that we're not previously aware of. The practice I bring into my practice walking on Market Street in San Francisco, there's one block in particular. I try and always be present and just keep dropping in the question, is suffering present? It might be a homeless person on the street. And then if I catch there's no compassion, there's no compassion present, and I know I'm not fully present for the experience. I can pause and check in what's present. From Inga Rinpoche, compassion is a spontaneous wisdom of the heart. It's always with us. It always has been and always will be. When it arises in us, we simply, we simply learn to see how strong and safe we are. I draw great inspiration from the Buddha. The Buddha, having fully realized the truth of the way things are, was able to see the suffering of the entire world, said he could see the suffering in the past, in the future. And yet he could hold it all with a heart of infinite compassion, with the support of equanimity that helps to provide the balance, the deep equanimity was present for the Buddha. So he could see the entire suffering of the world, hold it with compassion, and he was known as a happy one. It was free of the forces of greed, aversion, and delusion. The Buddha realized infinite wisdom, infinite compassion, what are called the two wings of awakening. Quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama on compassion, a mind committed to compassion is like an overflowing reservoir, a constant source of energy, determination, and kindness. This mind can also be likened to a seed. When cultivated, it gives rise to many other qualities, such as forgiveness, tolerance, inner strength, and the confidence to overcome fear and insecurity. So it can support us right here in bringing a greater level of energy, acceptance, courage to our practice. Great story on forgiveness that I like to share, a story of John Lewis. John Lewis, I think, is one of the great heroes of our time, living heroes in our country. He's a congressman from Georgia, an early civil rights leader, a civil rights activist at a very young age. It's a story from May 1961. He was in a protest in South Carolina, and he had entered a whites-only bus waiting room. And he was uh, beaten up, attacked by people there. Years later, he was visited by the man who had attacked him. He was now in his 70s, and he was accompanied by his son. And he said, Mr. Lewis, I'm one of the people who beat you and your seatmate. I'd been a member of the Klan, and I want to now apologize. Will you accept my apology? Will you forgive me? And Lewis did. He was quoted as saying, in the power 
of the way of peace, the way of love. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I missed a word there. It is the power of the way of peace, the way of love to forgive. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, hate is too heavy a burden to bear. You must never, ever hate. The way of love is a better way. The way of peace is a better way. John Lewis has had this amazing quality of commitment to non-harming throughout all of his years of activism. A A very deep commitment to pacifism. And the forgiveness, this forgiveness allows the healing, the putting down of burdens, putting down the burdens we carry when we're, we're not able to forgive, putting down the burden of anger. Sometimes it's just a first step of just beginning the process of being able to forgive. It can take years sometimes for the forgiveness practice to unfold. Uh, a powerful story I want to share. It just happened fairly recently. I was just outside my house and a neighbor and friend was walking down the street. I hadn't seen him in a few weeks and I asked him how he was and he said, well, the doctor said everything looks good. And I said, well, why did you say that? Is something wrong? And he said, well, I just went through a major surgery. I donated a kidney to my friend who was otherwise going to die. I was so moved by that. I really saw the beautiful qualities of kindness and compassion in the heart of my friend. And the generosity that naturally comes forward. Tremendous generosity. So in ending, wise intention, it's a practice for our lives, a practice of cultivating renunciation, loving kindness, Compassion, better practice for our retreat for our retreat right here. For our retreat right here as well. Whether we're here for a month or two months, cultivating wise intention is an important part of our practice. And then recognizing when wise intention is not present. And so we're in effect with this practice, we're allowing the natural qualities of love compassion, joy, to come forward in our practice, to support our practice, coming more deeply in touch with who we really are. So this is a path of our practice. I'd like to close with a quote from uh, my favorite poem, Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. This is the last stanza of that poem. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of the earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known, because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, 
always a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongue of flame are enfolded into the crown knot of fire, and the fire and rose are one. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your kind attention. And if you have the energy, please come back for the nine o'clock chanting and sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.